Well, let's turn to Second uh, Peter. Second Peter, chapter three. This is a subject that I have avoided teaching on deliberately for many, many years. <clears throat> and I would still avoid it if it wasn't for the fact that I can't not avoid it any longer. <laughs> and uh, because particularly it's in the text and um, I feel so ignorant about the subject that... Yeah, I would wish someone else would do it, but here we are. And it has given me great, uh, as I've thought about it and studied it more and listened to other preachers and read other theological points of view, it's been humbling. I know that better men have studied it longer and... More thoroughly than I have or probably ever will. And yet I believe the prevailing view in Christendom um, may be wrong. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Um, but I was comforted as long as we maintain a humble attitude. Just think of the people that loved Jesus the most, they were completely wrong about some things about his first coming. And I'm comforted in that. Um, so we ought not to be hurling um, yeah, just thinking less of others, even if they've got something wrong, that we feel it's wrong. Um, Reminded that his own disciples, right even after his resurrection, they said, before he went into heaven, they said, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he could have just shook his head and said, these guys don't know anything. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen that way. I know that's the way you think it should happen and would like it to happen, but that's not how it's going to happen. And it's similar with this. Um, but I thought we could start on talking about what I think everybody would agree on. And then we'll work backwards to the things that perhaps not all Christians would agree on. <clears throat> so we'll just read our text down to verse uh, 14 and then we'll dive in. It's not 10 o'clock, right? What time is it? Oh, so that's just an hour behind. Okay. All right. <clears throat> okay, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, and both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets <clears throat> and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, <clears throat> Where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can look to your word for guidance. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your light and life we We thank you, Lord, for all your mercies and grace to us, and we look to you for understanding. Uh, More than that, Lord, we want to live. uh, The whole point of this passage is that we would uh, live in light of your coming. What manner of persons ought we to be? Lord, we look to you for everything. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I could sum up this passage thus far, up to verse 14, Peter says that scoffers are going to come in the last days, and these are, are people that believe in God. They... Um, They may even be Christian people, although I wouldn't necessarily say that. But these are people that have knowledge um, of the scriptures. And again, they're they're scoffers. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? They look out there and they say, nothing has happened before. And why would we believe that Christ is going to return to the earth and destroy this place? And he says that they're willingly ignorant of the, the fact that God has destroyed the world before is um, 
well-established, not only if you look around in uh, creation, you can see that. Um, I don't know if you've ever driven on the QEW towards uh, Hamilton, and then you've gone down what's called the Hamilton Mountain, uh, if you're familiar with that area. If you drive by there, there is a huge, it lasts for maybe a kilometer, where you see rock that has obviously been laid there by water. And I don't think anybody would deny that. And it's stratified. It's like uh, layer upon layer upon layer of rock that's been laid down by water. And there's evidence of that around the whole globe. And the Word of God speaks of a time when God destroyed the whole world with water. I think we're all very familiar with that. But those that want to say that Christ is not going to come, um, they're willingly ignorant of this, even though it's well revealed in what we see around the world, and it is well revealed in the scriptures. And So Peter is saying these men are willingly ignorant because, particularly, it's been 2,000 years since, approximately, uh, since Christ came the first time and he went back into heaven. And it seems in every generation he's saying that he's going to come, and he's going to come quickly. At the end of Revelation, he says, Behold, I come quickly, and... We have been waiting for 2,000 years, and he hasn't come. And that doesn't seem to be quick to me. That's what they're saying. And yet, he reminds us, number one, that because God waits a long time doesn't mean that he won't act, because the long time is according to our time clock and not his. And that's when he says, be not ignorant of this one thing. God is outside of time. For him to wait for 2,000 years is just like us waiting for a couple of days. And that's just how God is. He's outside of time. And even though what may seem to us to be an exceeding long time, in fact, so long that he's not going to do anything, and that's where unbelieving men and our thoughts can go. He's never going to do anything because he hasn't done anything yet. And that's um, where our thoughts can go. And that's where these men went. But the Lord is not slack. He's not, um, he's not unwilling or unable to fulfill his promise. <clears throat> and then he talks about the day of the Lord. The day of God. And that's where we started to look uh, last time in that whole subject of what is the day of the Lord. It's uh, talked about throughout the Old Testament, and we, I tried to summarize what I believe the day of the Lord is. And as I thought about it and read and, and continued to read, Uh, I thought I'd have to refine a few of the things that I had said. One thing I want to apologize for, I don't know how uh, long ago it was. It may have been when I started this book, I think. 
that I said uh, of you folks, I said, whatever you believe about the second coming, you probably have wrong. And I thought, what an incredibly arrogant statement that was of me to make. Um, and I'm sorry for that. You may have some things wrong, but so may I. <laughs> and I want to be gracious and humble. And um, Deborah reminded of me, I had forgotten about it, but Deborah <laughs> reminded me of that statement. I thought, oh, that was just a terrible thing to say. And I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> I'm just a, a brother seeking God like you. <clears throat> so, let us uh, go through the scriptures and we'll, <clears throat> we're in the process of discovering what the day of the Lord was and what it shall be. And I think the scripture does bear those things out. <clears throat> and this is the statement I was going to refine. It is a day when God would destroy the wicked and save the righteous. And for the most part, that is true. If you go through all of the instances of the day of the Lord in the scriptures, that's what usually happens. But sometimes the day of the Lord comes on a nation and there is no righteous delivered because there is none there. <clears throat> um, and I could think of a few times when that's the case. Um, God talks about destroying Idumea, and there's no indication that any righteous people got out of there. Um, he promises that he would destroy, or wouldn't destroy Sodom, and there were some people that came out, but they were very few. Um, he destroys Babylon, and there isn't any indication of believing people there. The Jews... Um, were fleeing that place and they came back to the land and then God promises to destroy Babylon. So all that to say, for the most part, when the day of the Lord came, he punished the wicked and saved the righteous. And that was, um, generally speaking. <clears throat> Although the day was announced, the time is not usually revealed other than it's soon. <laughs> and so these are all interpretive, uh, are things to put in our minds because we're going to need to take them out and use them as tools to interpret the rest of the Bible. And that's why I am repeating myself. And I don't know if you're like, uh, like me. You're probably not. Um, but unfortunately, you have to sit through me studying and for me to learn something, I've got to read it five times. I don't know about you. Five, ten, like I just have to keep reading. And so that's, uh, that's my approach. It always has been just to keep reading again the same things and then eventually it sticks in my mind. So it's a day and the day can be 
one day or it can be a duration of time. Uh, so it doesn't have to be limited to a day. But it's always spoken of as a day because there's a day when it begins and there will be a day when it ended. And it may happen in an instant or it may be stretched out over a period of time. <clears throat> so the nature of the judgment could be entirely supernatural as we see in Noah's flood or it could be entirely what's looked like as natural which we see in, uh, say, Joel's locust plague that came upon Israel, worms and locusts, and devoured the entire place. And it was the worst plague that the land had ever saw and never to see again. Why? Because it was supernaturally produced, as we could say. But to the observer, they would just say, oh, this just looks like a really, really, really bad locust plague. But the prophet reveals it's actually God uh, smiting the nation with the hopes that they would turn toward him. And that's always the hope uh, that people would turn uh, towards God. <clears throat> so there's been one entirely supernatural judgment of God, day of God, and that was Noah's flood. And there is one more entirely supernatural day of God, and that is the second coming of Christ. And on that, I think all Christians would agree that Christ will return to the earth bodily because the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you look into heaven? And this Jesus whom you saw go into heaven in like manner will return again. And that is not apocalyptic, visionary literature. That's very plain language. The men of Galilee, there's no other way to read the text. He went up into heaven. Uh, of course, he's uh, the son of God. He's just, no gravity has no effect on him, and he just went up into heaven where he came from. And the scripture says that he's going to come in like manner. He's going to come back to the earth. Now, there is so many questions, and there are probably many, many in your mind, how everything all fits together. And yeah, I don't know. And because he says he's going to destroy the world by fire. And uh, how's the Lord going to come back to an earth that's uh, a flaming ball of fire? I don't know. There's many, many things, and I think we need to leave many things to God. And it's like those that Paul dealt with in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that they mocked or said there cannot be a resurrection of the dead. Why? Because of this and this and this and that problem. And they had all these things in their mind, and Paul says, you fools. And he goes on to explain why those arguments are foolish. And it's like that. When we, there's things that we don't understand or don't know how they're all going to work together. We need to say, Lord, I know you can work this out. I don't understand this. Maybe it's, it's there in the text. I just haven't understood it yet. And I think if we come with that attitude, then much 
less of what we don't understand will stumble us and we're just going to go forward and seek to understand what God has revealed. Um, Most of the days of the Lord, all of the days of the Lord, except for two, that's a good way of putting it, where foreign armies coming in to, as it were, do God's bidding. Uh, Sometimes the foreign army was a locust plague, but mostly it was the two-legged kind of foreign armies, men that would come in and they would be uh, wiping out uh, a people. Sometimes it was the people of Israel. Sometimes it was another people that God would destroy who he had borne with patiently for, in some cases, hundreds of years. Um, So God doesn't fly off the handle, as it were. He waits and he waits and he waits. And he says that in this text, he's waiting for people to turn, to be saved. And that's why he waits so long. So, there is days of the Lord that are, are um, local in nature, and that is most of them that were the case. So most of the time when you read in the scripture that about the day of the Lord, it was a local day of the Lord. Like the destruction of Jerusalem happened right there in the land of Judea. So if you lived over in North America, you would have no clue that it was the day of the Lord because you weren't there. And likewise, if you lived in Babylon or if you lived in Egypt, and then you could just name um, all of those different places where the day of the Lord took place. And most of the days of the Lord revealed in the scripture took place in Israel because it was the people of Israel that God was dealing with. And that's why uh, that is the case. So the coming uh, judgment of God that is universal is that one coming day when Christ will return to the earth. So again, that's summing up what the day of the Lord is in the scriptures. And then we started to go through them in, um, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and right through. And I can't remember where I left off. Does any, anybody remember where I left off? Did I get into Isaiah? I think I did read chapter 2. I can't remember if I read Isaiah 13. But we'll turn there, and if you say, Oh, Sean, I think you read this before, then you'll put up your hand and say, Yeah, you've forgotten which is entirely the case. So turn to Isaiah 13. Again, this is such a big subject that, uh, yeah, it's almost overwhelming uh, for me because uh, all I have to know is master the whole Bible and then it wouldn't be a problem, but I... I haven't done that, so um, I feel 
yeah, wow, it's just a big subject, but there's only one way, and that's take one bite at a time. <clears throat> so we're going to be going back and forth between Isaiah and, uh, and the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation is the day of the Lord. And so if we're going to understand the day of the Lord, that's going to have to come in to our discussion. So in Isaiah 13, this is, uh, I don't know if you have this note in your Bible, but it says the burden of Babylon. Uh, The prophet is revealed to the prophet that Babylon is going to come to an end. Both the Babylon that then was under Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning and then his um, son, was was his name Belteshazzar, or was that his name? Um, So many names in my mind, I can't remember. So on that... um, on that country, he's going to bring in uh, a judgment because of all their, um, their idolatry. And the, the very nation that he used to wipe out other nations, he's going to himself wipe them out. <clears throat> so we'll start reading at verse 5. So he's bringing another nation, the Medo-Persian Empire, in to wipe out Babylon. In verse 5, And they come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord, and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So this is very important. I can't stress this enough. God is speaking as if he is doing it, but he's actually using another nation to do it. That's... uh, I'll, I'll keep mentioning that, and you'll know why when eventually we get to Matthew 24... Why I believe that, um, yeah, Matthew 24 is not speaking of a literal second coming of Christ, but is talking about, be careful how I say this, not the literal coming of Christ to the earth, but his coming in judgment, just like he's speaking here, upon Israel, who had rejected him, who had crucified and killed their own Messiah and had rejected him. And God is going to punish the nation for that. And he uses the Roman Empire to do it. And it's just like here. He says they they come from a far country from the end of heaven. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. Even even the Lord, he says. Notice that there in verse 5. So he's coming with Medo-Persia, but it's coming as if God is doing it himself. And I believe that that's what's happening in uh, the coming of Christ to punish Israel. I believe that's what's happened there in Matthew 24. The day of the Lord. Local destruction of Jerusalem. And it came upon the people of Israel who had rejected their Messiah. <clears throat> so that's an important point. Even the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. And then he describes 
their reaction. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt and they shall be as they shall be afraid pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them and they shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth they shall be amazed one another and their faces shall be as flames <clears throat> behold the day of the lord cometh cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners out of it and then notice this phrase or this verse For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going down, going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So again, even though he is talking about Babylon then that was... There are some that say that this is talking about the future Babylon, and I wouldn't have a trouble with that because often there can be prophecies with a near fulfillment, that is, at the present time, and then there's another fulfillment in the future. And we see that in many different scriptures that are given in the Old Testament. But notice the language of verse 10. I believe the falling of Babylon is, it says, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The nations of the world, of which Babylon was exalted to the very head. Remember he said of Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. So he was the head of gold in that statue, and he had been exalted to heaven. And if if Nebuchadnezzar had said, yes, God brought me here, etc., etc., um, Then he would have continued. But what did he say? He said, he went out on the roof of his palace and he looked around and he said, Is this not the great Babylon which, and he basically says, I have made. And God says, you're going to be brought low because of that. (laughs) And so the kingdoms of the world are likened unto stars and constellations. And they're going to fall. And that language is given in uh, astronomical language. The language of the nations falling is given in that astronomical language, i.e., the stars of heaven falling. And in Re- we're going to go to the book of Revelation and we're going to see how the prophet describes those. This exact language is given in Revelation. So turn over to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. The Tesons have had to endure this more than once. Isaiah 34 in verse 1. Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and let all this therein, and the world, and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their their armies. 
He hath, he hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down, as a, as a leaf falleth off a vine, and as a falling fig from a fig tree. So he's just talked about all the nations of the world, and then he says they're all going to fall like a leaf off a tree. I think that's quite obvious from the text. He's using uh, astronomical language to talk about the destruction of the nations. And as we go to the book of Revelation, you'll see that. And look at verse 5. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. So he he says he's going to punish Idumea. Why? Because of their um, how they mocked the people of Israel, how they said that we're going to inherit their land, and all of that. That's in verse eight. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and a year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. So, because of what they did to the people of God when they were being taken out to Babylon, they. They rejoiced over it. They said, oh, man, you guys are getting yours. And, and God said, I'll remember that. And he did. And he is going to destroy them. But the language used is figurative in nature. He says it's, it's like the sky is going to roll up like a scroll. You take a scroll and you roll it out and then you let it go and it just and it rolls up together. And it's like a leaf falling off a tree. It's like a fig. You're going to fall down. And that's, that's the language that is used. So then when we go over to Revelation chapter 6. In verse 12, Revelation 6 and 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when it is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. And he said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come. And who is able to stand? Every part of that is taken from Isaiah. <clears throat> So, and the part about the moon uh, becoming black as sackcloth and um, the moon becoming blood is taken from Joel's prophecy. So all the language of the prophets about the day of God, the day of the Lord, is taken out of 
all those prophets, it's condensed into the book of Revelation. And you can see that we've read those, the verses about the stars of heaven falling. But what is happening in the book of the Revelation is God is saying, I'm going to judge you, this great Babylon. And we know that at the end of Revelation, Babylon is a personification of all of the economic and the spiritual idolatrous uh, world system that rejects God. And he's going to bring them down. And we see that in the book of Revelation. I don't, you don't have to uh, read it very many times to notice that that's what it's talking about. And it's using figurative language, but it's also representing real events. So just because something is figurative doesn't mean that it isn't uh, signifying a real event. <clears throat> wow, this is so big that I, can, I hardly feel like I'm making any sense, but bear with me. What's that? Okay. It's just, uh, I think and there's so much that I haven't said or couldn't say in an hour that... Uh... <clears throat> anyway, that is... Uh, because uh, there's two approaches that are taken in prophecy and that is one of a very literal approach where the book of Revelation is literally going to be fulfilled and it's still future yet Um, and all the judgments that are spoken of here will actually take place the way they are written what I am pointing out is that the judgments that did happen in the day of the Lord were spoken of like the sky rolling up like a scroll and the moon being darkened and all of that is um, figurative in its nature for the destruction of a nation. And therefore, uh, to expect that all of these events written of in the book of Revelation were literally and are literally going to be fulfilled in a seven-year period that's known as the Great Tribulation. I'm sure you've heard all of this. Um, I don't believe that's the way it's going to be played out. <clears throat> I think the book of Revelation has been being fulfilled throughout the history of, uh, of the world and it's not going to um, happen uh, like it is, like people think it will be, <laughs> if I could say that. Um, so that's my premise that the things that have been revealed or are revealed in Revelation are primarily figurative in nature but they do represent real events. Here's one just for instance. Um, It talks about pestilences and a third of the earth being wiped out by that. Um, I think in the 1300s, there was a plague that started to sweep the globe and I, I think it took five years for it to completely run its course. Storm, is that? Yeah, so my ignorance of that, uh, I know enough to be dangerous perhaps, but uh, the 
the, the plague that was known as the Black Death, I'm sure we've all heard of it. It swept the globe in the 1300s, perhaps in waves, but it killed a third of the earth. 60 million people were wiped out by what's called the Black Death. Um, and then you read in the book of Revelation about plagues and about famines and about earthquakes and goes on and on and on. Those things have been happening throughout the history of the world and since Christ went back into heaven. And it isn't going to be compressed into one particular small time frame. And I think that's quite plausible given that the day of God we have seen happens in different locales and at different parts of time and at different um, severities throughout uh, the history of the world. Well, let's go on. There's so many things I'm just thinking about. It's like, I wonder if it's making sense, but Dave's telling me I'm making some sense, so we'll just go with that. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 46. Jeremiah 46. Uh, Jeremiah's prophecy is um, directed mostly at um, the people of Israel because of their idolatry and their unfaithfulness to God. He was going to punish them severely. Um, But here's a section where God is speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Egypt. And we know that Egypt, there in verse 2, it says, against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necro, king of Egypt. And he, this prophecy is about him being humbled and cast down and his country being laid waste. In verse 10, for this is the day of the God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And his sword shall devour and be satiated and make drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. So again, the whole, the, uh, the country of Egypt is wiped out. In verse 13 it says, The word of the Lord spake to Jeremiah the prophet how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, should come and smite the land of Egypt. And that's basically what it's about. It's a day of God to bring down the nation of Egypt. Turn over to... uh, Oh, we'll just skip that and go straight to Joel. We're just going to wade in so deep we can almost drown. So turn to... uh, Joel's prophecy, uh, quoted much in the New Testament, and we'll weigh in at uh, Joel 
chapter 1 and verse 6. Now, turn over to, uh, just put your finger in Revelation chapter 9 before we start, because we're going to jump back and forth between Revelation 9 and, uh, and Joel. <clears throat> so, Joel chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of lions of a lion, and he hath the cheek cheek teeth of a great lion. And then it tells what he's doing. And actually the nation he's speaking of is actually not a people, but it's a locust plague, as we shall see. <clears throat> but he likens it unto a nation that have teeth like a lion. Why? Because of what they're doing. It says, He hath laid my, my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean, bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. <clears throat> so again, he speaks of a nation, but he's really talking about a locust plague because you read verse 7, and what army comes in and starts eating all the vines and taking the bark off the trees? He's not talking about a literal nation of men with two legs. He's talking about a locust plague, but he's using figurative language. And if we understand that, we can read the prophets without being like, huh, what's going on here? And that is Joel's uh, prophecy is about a locust plague. And it was a terrible one, like one that was so bad it had never been that bad before and it hasn't been that bad since. So that's what's happening but then turn over to the book of Revelation in chapter 9 and verse 7 and again we're just coming in it says in verse 7 and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle and on their heads were as crowns like gold, and their faces were of the face of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. So it's describing a plague, supposedly in the time of the Great Tribulation, and it's describing these men, and their teeth are like the teeth of lions, and it, they're like locusts. And that is the plague that's spoken of there. They got hair like women. And it's obviously figurative language to describe a fierce, destructive nation coming to judge the earth. And I think expecting that this is literally going to happen is to completely miss what the prophets are saying. We'll keep moving. And back to Joel. <clears throat> it talks about this locust plague. And it says in verse 2, in Joel 2.2, 2, And it's a day of darkness and of gloominess and a day of clouds and a day of thick darkness. 
as the morning spread upon the mountains. So it's describing a dark day. And I think that's to describe the time of destruction. It isn't necessarily because there isn't any sunlight, although a locust plague could block out the sunlight temporarily until they actually land on the ground. But I think the whole, which language happens over and over and over again, the day of the Lord is always associated as a dark day. It's a, it's a day with clouds. It's like a day that's perpetually mourning, is I think what he's saying. Mourning spread upon the mountains. And then he says immediately, a great people and a strong. There has never been the like, neither shall there shall any more after it, even to the years of many generations. And then it goes on. A fire devours before them. Behind them a flame burneth, and the land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and horsemen, so they run, like the noise of chariots on the top of the mountains. So he's going back and forth, describing this locust plague, as if they're like horses running into battle and like chariots and just like the pounding, thunderous uh, moving of this locust plague and eating everything in its sight and just behind them is just like a desolate wilderness. So the language of that horseman and everything, and then you go over to the book of Revelation. And in verse 9 it says, And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running into battle. So it describing this army that's going destroying, um, and there was literal armies that destroyed literal nations. But the prophet's using language that's figurative to describe a fierce nation. And that isn't to say behind all of this language is a literal event. But to expect that, you know, you're, and people have tried to do this where they've tried to put modern warfare and armies into the book of Revelation describing and, and what John was really seeing was helicopter gunships and flamethrowers and everything. And I'm thinking we're missing the point. If you can understand where I'm going with this, like these are really um, yeah, Comanche helicopters with you know and they're trying to bring in all the modern warfare because thinking, how, how is this all going to take place with an army of 200 million coming with horses and swords? Well, we've kind of left that behind for the last about 150 years. And now we've got nuclear weapons, so how's all this going to work? Um, it's because this has been happening for hundreds of years. The book of Revelation is being unfolded. The wrath of God being revealed from heaven isn't just something that happened yesterday or the day before. It's been happening since the beginning of time. The day of God happened in Noah's flood, and it's been happening, um, and I'm counting on you understanding what I'm saying. 
Um, let's turn to uh, Joel 2.10. Joel 2.10. So it's talking about this locust plague. They shall run to and fro in the city in verse 9. They shall run upon the wall. They shall come up upon the, upon the houses, and they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun shall, and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is a strong For he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? So again, in describing this locust plague coming, he's saying the moon's going to be dark. Um, The the stars are going to withdraw their shining. And again, a locust plague has the ability to do that. But they don't just stay in the air forever and stay in one place. They come down to the earth. And that's where they do their devastation. But the language there is none. It's like the earth is quaking uh, at their coming. And then turn over to uh, Revelation 6.12 again. How I've done this is I've gone back and forth and back and forth in reading the prophet and reading Revelation. And just noticing the... Similarities and the language. And I beheld, and there opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Again, the same language that Joel uses of a locust plague coming to destroy the world is the language that's used in the book of Revelation to describe. the destruction of the kingdoms of the world when Christ returns. Um, But he's been doing that for many generations. He's been, nations have been coming up. Germany, Adolf Hitler, in uh, the last century, he believed he was going to be the third Reich. He was going to take over the world. And God says, no, you're not. And he brought them down. He used other nations to do it. He rose, uh, Germany rose up, and then other nations rose up and destroyed him. Um, this is how God has worked in the history of the world. Now, can I say with prophetic um, certainty that that's what, what it was? No, but it would be consistent with how God has operated in the history of the world and his uh, raising up one nation to punish another, and all with the hope that men would turn to him and all of that calamity. And that's really what's happening in the book of Revelation itself. Remember, when all these plagues came, it says the men blasphemed the God of heaven and did not repent of their, and it, it lists all of their sins. And that's what God was looking for. God has been looking for, for generations, when calamities come, for men to turn their eyes and their hearts up to heaven 
That's what the entire book of Revelation is about, that men would turn to God and they won't turn to God. And that's really what's happening in Joel. He said, oh, that you would just turn to me. And I would leave a blessing behind. But people will not. Instead, they... And they curse God. And that's what's happening in the book of Revelation. You read it. God is bringing judgments on the earth. And that men would repent. He's crying out. He's using angels and all kinds of things to spread the everlasting gospel, which I believe is men in reality. But men will not turn from their sin, and there are obviously some that do. Uh, But that's God's whole... He isn't just wiping people out for the sake of wiping people out. He's wiping people out so that those that are alive will say, as in Joel chapter... 2 and verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn again to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, and slow to anger, and of a great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. So that's that's God's end that he wants for men, that they would turn in the calamities that come upon them in life, turn to God. And that's what he was doing here in Joel. God has been completely consistent throughout the history of the world. <clears throat> Turn over to 2, Joel 2 and verse 30. <clears throat> Again, this is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. We're going to skip over the part about the Spirit coming on all flesh. And it says, I'll show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So embedded in that passage is the salvation of the righteous, of those that would turn to Christ in repentance, and we saw that demonstrated on the day of Pentecost. But the language there, the sun being darkened and turned into blood, I don't think we're literally looking for the sun actually going dark and the moon actually turning to blood like you've seen or like hopefully you haven't seen in the Left Behind movies. I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's... uh, Again, movies about the rapture and the time of the end. And that's what they're literally depicting. And that's why many people literally believe that is going to happen. And I don't believe that's how it's going to look. Um, But at the same time, I want you not to get the idea that Um, 
Christ isn't literally going to come to earth, because he will. And he's literally going to destroy the world by fire, because he will. Not used in figurative language, Noah's uh, flood was not figurative in nature. It was literal, and it was worldwide. But God's moving throughout history has been... um, consistent down through the years and the language of the prophets describing it have been consistent and the book of revelation is just described many of the plagues and the terrible things that have come upon the face of the earth down through the history of the world all with the hope that people would turn to God before that day and when there are judgments that those that are still alive would turn to God in, uh, as they behold those afflictions. <clears throat> turn over to Joel chapter 3. And verse 13. Again, this exact language used in Revelation, which we'll go to. uh, Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, and the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, when you shall. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no more strangers pass through her any more. Turn over to Revelation 14. Revelation 14 and verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and it sat upon the cloud, sat one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice unto him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, having also a sharp sickle. And the other angel came out of the altar and had power over fire and cried with a loud And cried with a loud cry unto him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for the grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in the sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and it cast it into a great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden out of the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, a space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. 
Again, we see in the, Joel's prophecy of a sickle going in, and we see in Revelation, Christ is saying, reap, and he's gathering grapes, and he throws them into a wine press of the wrath of God. It's obvious figurative language, but it does, figurative language always represents something in reality. And the reality is, is that God is going to harvest the earth of sinners and throw them into a winepress of the wrath of God. Unbelievable, terrible um, judgments that come upon men. And in all of it, God is looking for men to turn to him. I, that is the heart of God, and only the devil will suggest otherwise. The devil suggests that God is just a meanie that just wants to tread people down, and that is not true. God is... Christ came and he wept over Jerusalem because they had killed the prophets and they were going to kill him too. And that's why he was weeping. And there was a purpose in it all, but... That is consistent with the operation of God down through the centuries. <clears throat> believe it or not, we're almost through the entire Old Testament, <clears throat> if you can believe it. Amos. Turn to uh, Amos. Now, this is the day of Uzziah. Uh, and his son Jotham and Ahaz. So turn to Amos chapter 5 and verse 16. Amos 5 and verse 16. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord says thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas! And they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. And all the vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. <clears throat> so he's, God is coming in judgment, but how is it looking in reality? He's saying the, the vineyards, he's talking about the vineyards. Well, he's having drought and terrible judgments that are very similar to um, the other prophets. And look at verse 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord, for to what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And then he says, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned on his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Now this is, uh, the people there were saying, we want the day of the Lord to come. Why? Because the, the day of the Lord, they knew, was for him to judge the wicked and to save the righteous. And they were saying, yes, come Lord Jesus. The only problem is, is that they were the wicked. The people of Israel were living in wickedness. And if you read the book of Amos, you see 
they were doing the new moons and the Sabbaths and the feasts and all that stuff. But if you read, they were doing it all in the background was idolatry and wickedness in their lives. And then you can read that uh, throughout the book of Amos. So they were saying, but we're in such terrible situation. We want the day of the Lord to come. And that's why the prophet says that. He says in verse 20, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Notice the language. The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. They were saying, we want the day of the Lord to come because it's going to be light for us. Not literal sunlight, but it's going to be a day of salvation. That's what they were hoping for. But the prophet said, no, it's going to be darkness. And then he says, why? I hate and despise your feasts, and I will not smell of in your, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment roll down like waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. So again, the, the prophet reminds them that the day of the Lord is going to be darkness. Why? Because they are wicked people. And they were going through all the religious stuff, but it was empty. And God was looking for righteousness. He was looking for true judgment. But they uh, would have none of that. But notice the language again. uh, Darkness and not light. All of these things are all funneling into our interpretation of the day of the Lord. Turn to Zephaniah and we'll end with this. And all of these days of the Lord that have happened that we've read about have all already happened, past tense, right? The destruction of the world in Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the uh, destruction of Israel in 586 B.C. through Nebuchadnezzar, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in uh, 70 A.D., All these were days of the Lord that are past, past tense. But they're all small samples of what we will see in the future. And, but we have to realize that the day of the Lord has happened in many different places at many different times. As we said at the beginning, local um, judgments where God is revealing his wrath for a purpose. Turn to Zephaniah. Again, when we... we, uh, I always like to read what time period it was. And Zephaniah prophesied in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. When was that? That was just before, when I say just before, it could be uh, many years, but it was just before 
the destruction of Jerusalem that happened by Nebuchadnezzar when he came in. And he took away the people in three waves and he brought them to Babylon. And at the last time, he destroyed the temple, Solomon's temple. He destroyed that temple, which was a magnificent temple. And he destroyed it and he carried the people into Babylon. This is the time period that is spoken of. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet, but it will. Turn to Zephaniah 1.7. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, and he hath bid his guests. When it says the day of the Lord is at hand, it could be decades away even, if you read the chronology. And yet he's saying it as if it's going to happen tomorrow. Right? And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the, the king's children and all such that are clothed with strange apparel. And in the same day, I will also punish all those that leap on the thresholds, which fill their masters' houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be a noise and a cry from the fish gate and a howling from the second and a cause and a great crashing from the hills. So again, he's describing a day that Jerusalem is going to be uh, destroyed down to verse 13 therefore all goods shall become as booty and their houses a desolation and they shall also build houses but not inhabit them they shall plant vineyards but not drink the wine thereof the great day of the Lord is near it is near hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord the mighty man shall cry there bitterly The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wastedness, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Again, that we've read over and over and over again. It's a day of darkness and gloominess. It's... It's the language of the prophets to describe a dark day. Not literally, but figuratively and literally, if you know what I mean. I don't know if you've all heard of the term Black Friday. Who's heard that term? Does anyone know what that actually means or what it's referencing? I think in recent time, uh, because... People are so crazed for shopping that in the United States they'd have a sale on a particular time of year that was just after the uh, American uh, Thanksgiving. And before Christmas, to kick off the whole shopping craze, they would have a shopping day. And you can check this out and see if I'm right or wrong. But I believe this is where it comes from. And they would have the doors barred or chained in a particular store, like Walmart or whatever other place where they're having these sales. And in some locales, they would... I saw a video of the employee going up to the door like this, and it's like a mob of people, a mob behind the door, and just unlatch that chain and then run for it, 
Why? Because they would literally be trampled to death. And that's what happened. People were trampled to death going after stereos and TVs and whatever other nonsense they thought they really needed. Literally, people were trampled to death, so they called it Black Friday. Why? Because it was a day when people died. It wasn't a literal talking about a Black Friday like darkness. It's talking about what happened. And I believe that's what God is pointing to in all of these references to a gloomy day. It's a day of judgment. It's not a day of salvation. A day of salvation is spoken of as light. A day of judgment is spoken of as darkness. And that's what this is picturing in very figurative language. And you can read it for yourself. But one thing you need to hold on to is it's talking about literal events. But not, um, we're not expecting the moon to literally, as we saw, as I hope you didn't see, but as I saw in a movie where the moon's like literally turned into blood and half the sun being blocked out and stuff like that. I don't believe that's what God is speaking of when he speaks of these things. And lastly, the last scripture, and we'll end with that, in Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather yourselves together, yea, gathered together, a nation not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, and before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek the Lord. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be that you will be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. I can't stress this enough. God's purpose in bringing judgments is that men would turn from their way. And I know that Yeah, that is the purpose of God as we see, as we slowly, uh, and I say slowly because I'm slow in grasping many of these things, but that it could grip our hearts with, uh, because at the end of our passage, Peter says, since all these things are going to be dissolved in this manner, what manner of persons ought we to be? And then I look at myself and think, and in times past, I would get, yeah, I'd be pretty discouraged about myself. But there's no, yeah, you just got to just chuck all that and say, Lord Jesus. You received me once, just receive me again, and I'm going forward. And uh, <clears throat> we see lots of lack, but when I look to Jesus, how many see lack in Jesus? No hands raised. Why? Because there isn't any. But how many see lack in themselves? <clears throat> yep, so where's the proper way to look? Look away from me and look to Jesus. And that's what the scripture says, looking 
unto Jesus. We know the day of the Lord is coming, and it's going to come like a thief in the night. What manner of persons ought we to be in all godliness and uh, honesty? We ought to be the people of God, waiting for the day of his coming. And while we're waiting, we're busy seeking to bring as many people with us out of the judgment. As it were, like Lot's went and told his son-in-law. As it were, if he could have, grabbed a hold of them and bring them out. And that's what we ought to be doing. Uh, Bringing as many people with us out of the overthrow as possible.